Welcome to the Sports Entrepreneurs Podcast. I'm your host, Marcus Lure, and today we're crossing over to my hometown, Cologne, to catch up with Rolf Reichert of ESL. Welcome to the podcast, Rolf. Hey, how are you? And I didn't know actually that you come from Cologne. I mean, you probably told me before, but I somehow missed that. Yeah, yeah, that is my hometown. I know it's not your hometown, but it is your, it is your hometown now for many, many years. And and uh, I'm going to ask you about that later too. How you ended up in <laughs> Cologne, coming obviously from a different part of the of Germany. But let me just quickly introduce you to the rest of the world here who might not recognize your name right away. Ralph is clearly one of the founding fathers in the world of esports and gaming. Been in this for over two decades, and this is obviously what we'll be talking about here today. The amazing journey he had with ESL and prior to that with uh, SK Gaming and all the learning which comes with it, and of course what ESL is doing now, today, and the future of the industry. So we're going to unpack a bunch of those things uh, in the next hour here, and uh, you know, I'm sure we'll be learning a ton of new things here. But before we go there, Ralph, tell us a bit about your early start here. You know, you studied in Duisburg, and then you ended up at a BMW dealership there for your first sort of part of your career. And just, uh, you know, give us a bit of a sense of what happened there and, and you know, how that helped you build uh, for your future career here. Sure. I mean, look, I grew up in Oberhausen, which is part of Ruhrgebiet, which is the coal mining part of Germany. Right? Sure it's, it's a very honest environment. Um, <laughs> grew up with two brothers, actually, where we started to compete at the very early ages. And actually, football was our number one sport and video games was always our, let's call it, um, free time hobby on top of it. So, uh -huh. um Grew up as a very competitive family environment in a good way. Um, we're playing together up until these days. And um, normal normal school, um, went to university. It's actually back then was the University of Essen. Mm -hmm. uh, it was merged with Duisburg later. So that's why, why you know, in, in my CV, it's probably named like that. Mm -hmm. But um, actually decided to go to the nearest college, so to speak, um, rather than go to the best college, which actually some of my school friends did. Um, never regretted that choice because it gave... Um, Amazing combination of work-life balance. Uh, I don't think the term was coined back in those days, but these days um, you would, would name it like that. So that was fantastic. Um, and next to going to college, I had enough time to continue to play football um, and actually to do, let's call it a part-time job. And I started at a local BMW dealership, which frankly was a friend of my dad. And they said, hey, come here, join us and you know, do a little bit of would call it an apprenticeship um, or, you know, a training program and, right. um, next to next to university. So I actually went there a day and a half a week and then and, and went through all the different departments they had. So I really started in, in logistics and then actually freaking learned how, how you know, a logistics uh, center is, is, is set up and being built and managed. Um, um, went through service um, and then how people to, to pick up and leave their car with us and then get it repaired um, 
worked in in actually the repair shop, um, right. worked in in sales, in in finance, and in, in, in marketing, and in everything that this 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 small dealership had. So mm. I I really got a 360 on how let's call it operations work, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And I learned much more there than I ever did in college, to be honest. Um, <laughs> college was good for some theory and some, let's call it, more strategic things. But really to understand how, how a company works, this was just brilliant. Yeah. And even on top of that, we, back in the days, BMW expanded and bought Rover. Um, people who were around there probably remember and uh, the dealer, right, build a rover shop next to it. And I had the pleasure to build it up with. So I could actually set up their IT and, you know, build it up for scratch and then learn how to how to set up processes. And after that, um, all parallel to my university, uh, BMW started to implement quality management. Um, quality management is, yeah, it, it's, it's probably a mastery these days. Back then, it was very new. It was, um, as far as I understood, one way to differentiate and make sure that um, that the dealership system of car manufacturers doesn't get broken up by antitrust laws. Okay. <laughs> and quality management was one way to defend it, that these dealers are, you know, specially trained and so on and so forth. So I had the pleasure of writing every process um, that company was doing um, in Word documents. Uh, very boring and very interesting at the same time. Learned so much about people and the way they work and the way they interact. All stuff that I could use later when we when we actually started and ran ESL. Hmm, and a little bit to the end of that time, right? University working there. I started in '93 and really, you know, finished university in 2000. So seven years. So it took a little bit longer. Uh, than that was supposed to. Um, that was because we found it um, some things in between. And I right. think the most important one was SK, right, in 96. Um, we're playing video games, started to play online. Quake came out, really the first online community with a few thousand people. Mm-hmm. And my brothers, a couple of friends said, this is where we want to compete and founded SK Gaming in 97 and, and spent a bunch of time with competing online, building that as a mini business, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And uh, to the end of that cycle in the late 90s, uh, 99 actually, met on a big tournament um, the, the guys who, who then went on and founded ESL with us to meet me together. Mm. Um, they were running some gaming stuff before, um, among them Jens Hilgers, who runs Bitcraft now, Alex Müller, yeah. who runs SK Gaming now. So, so, so people who stayed in the industry. And uh, look, the the answer or the the, the the system was back then. There was no real infrastructure, right? Uh, there was no proper leagues. There was no no way to make money as an esports athlete or team owner. Mm-hmm. So really, we we joined up and said we want to build that infrastructure to to create the basis for players and teams to make this a living. Number one, number two, to change the perspective perspective of uh, society on this gaming and cyber um, competition thing. It wasn't called esports back in the days um, yep. because at best you were laughed at. Uh, usually you were you were mocked a little bit for doing it. So. This the social part was number two, and how and we we, we knew back then we were a hundred percent convinced that this is going to be a, a spectator sport. Um, it was so obvious when we were close to it, hmm. um, and these three things together led us to to found what is Ellis today in two thousands. Um, 
Great. Yeah, that's I, I, the, I, I the start that. of the journey. Yeah, great, great warm up and 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 start here. Now let's let's uh, stick for a minute on on SK Gaming for a bit, and then uh, of course we'll go into ESL here. Um, now, w- actually, maybe I, I I didn't catch it properly. Which game were you guys playing when you started? Um, Quake, Quake One, Quake, right. Quake World, Quake One. Um, that was the. I mean, the first real game that had a proper online community, a proper netcode. I mean, we played Command and Conquer and, and Doom online, but they, they were still very peer-to-peer niche niche style. Quake was really the first one who had a world online, and hence it was called Quake World. Got it, got it. And now, okay, again, let's go back there. Were you already competing for any form of prize money or or some just was it just a trophy and, and uh, you know, whatever, a pat on the shoulder? It was graphics cards. And the, there was maybe, you know, it started in the US and there was only $10,000 tournaments and we went well, late 99 to one in the US, which had, I think, even $100,000 on the Razer CPL. So there was the first start, but they were more one-off tournaments than really an infrastructure. So we always came more from an ecosystem perspective with ESL where we said like, hey, we want to build something where you as an athlete have really a plan all year round, not just a one or two off. And I think from day one, thought a, a little bit more league tournament connection style. So a little bit more sophisticated than just, hey, let's do a one-off tournament. Mm-hmm. Got it. Now, your your nickname was Griff, right? When you were a player, I guess? That is that is correct. It's <laughs> uh, I would rephrase this. My nickname is Griff. Oh, it's still Griff. Okay, got it. <laughs> of course. Okay. And, and what, you still you, play? You, you, you don't change those. That's true. You don't true. change that's your name. Yeah, your gamer name. That's right. Yeah, that's cool. Um, now, you obviously, you know, you, you, you left uh, or, or, or moved on from the company, I think, reasonably quickly, um, you know, within a few years or so. Uh, but the company obviously is still or, or the, the, the team is still around. It's very successful. Right? It's one of the you know, oldest and established teams, I guess, in the world of gaming now and well known for CS or CSGO. And, but I've just had a look at the, the website. It has, you know, leaks and everything, uh, teams in, from Rocket League to, uh, you know, Clash Royale and Bronze Stars, et cetera. Uh, do you still follow the team or, or you have any sort of still indirect involvement with it? Or, or you've, you know, what, what sort of you, you sold your shares or what happened? Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, I really, in the very beginning, we actually did both, right? In 2000, 2001, when there was a start, I was still operationally involved in SK, mm-hmm. but started to, you know, add other people. Uh, Andreas Torstensen, SKBDS, is actually pretty, um, still famous one who, who just started his new company, Goal. So he's, he's developing a, a football NFT game. Anyway, mm-hmm. so, so we brought him early 2000, and Alex Miller, who's running it today as well um so we were doing it together in the beginning but then simply due to compliance reasons and workloads right you can't run a league and run a team so actually you know in in 2003-4 i started to let's call it this um, engage from sk in an operational matter i still stayed on the board for quite some time and in the early 2010s then it when this really became an industry right we always say 2014 15 mm-hmm. that's when um actually 2010 is when it became an industry when there was a, the the point of hyper growth started i would say and the tipping point was there but that then led to 2014 i actually sold my shares to 100% divest from it and not even even though i wasn't involved anymore 
but there was an, a conflict of interest discussion around the corner every every day, basically. So I had to have the decision to divest in it. I, I, I wish I didn't have to. I wish I could, could have stayed on. Um, but you can't do both, right? You can't run a league and run a team, um, and you can't be involved in something that's uh, that's obviously can create a, uh, a conflict of interest every day. All right, right. Well, it makes sense. Makes sense. Uh, yeah, and, and it's great to see uh, how long you've been involved. You were involved in it. Uh, so let's mm-hmm. let's go into ESL Gaming or Turtle Entertainment, as it's obviously uh, as the company name is. Where, where does you know what's what came first, Turtle Entertainment, ESL Gaming, or um, so it's total entertainment and the decision behind it was when we started the company was a little bit broader than just esports. It had some, um, some commerce stuff into it. We did game server rentals. We had a content magazine called turtle.com. Mm-hmm. So it was a broader online gaming company. And right. while searching for a name, the, the second part, the entertainment was, decided pretty quickly and then you only go through it what what is an, an add-on to that like the typical stuff blizzard tornado and so on and so forth was either taken hmm. or pretty uninspiring <laughs> we went in and thought right turtle is is actually our animal um it's um it lives forever so not many things can actually harm it it is actually steady right it's it's going into one direction usually very stoically and last but not least it actually can run really fast when it needs to so i that's where the values we we liked and we we went for um esl was a brand we built beyond that um, not beyond um below it or as part of it and later on stopped the other activities over time and really focused on esl and then actually renamed all of our activities and in 2010 there was very little beside esl already but technically renaming everything i think took us till 2018 or something like this Mm, got it got it interesting how did you end up from you know in, in you know growing up in Essen? How, why did you land up in Cologne? Um, what okay, was so the jump for, there? yeah, for the guys who who did the prequel to Turtle Entertainment, uh, Jens, Alex, and and Jan Philipp, um, they they were they were all located in Cologne. So actually, you know, because I joined them, I I had to relocate. Um, so it was. I'd say a little bit of a coincidence. I mean, Cologne was the media kind of hub in Germany. So that's one of the reasons, but it's probably more coincidence than anything else. Got it. Got it. Okay. Well, well welcome back to, welcome to my neighborhood here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, yeah, that, yeah, yeah. let's talk about, uh, you know, let's, you know, not everyone, you know, if you're in the world of gaming, of course, or esports now, uh, you would know ESL for sure. Um, but obviously we have listeners also from different genres here from the world of general sports. Uh, you know, explain a bit, you know, what exactly is ESL? Um, you know, the tagline you guys are using, the world largest independent esports company. Uh, and I like the other one, which which you use, I think, creating a world where everybody can be somebody. So what does that mean? And and, and I really mean it more from when you started, right? Uh, we'll come back mm-hmm. to what it means now. But, uh, you know, when you guys all started this, uh, you know, what, what, what was the focus? Uh, you know, let's stick to the, you know, in the year 2000 here when it all, you know, 21 years ago. Yeah. So, I mean, I already said, right, when we started, we really wanted to build that infrastructure for gamers to become esports athlete and aspired stars rather than, you know, being being kind of, you know, looked with a, 
an eyebrow on. So this was our DNA. Um, and what you just you know said to create a world where everybody can be somebody is just the manifestation of it. Mm-hmm. It means that we want to create esports ecosystem, which means that we want to take individual games, create an infrastructure around it that allows you to start as an amateur, start as an aspiring player and end up as a pro on a big stage being celebrated and make your living out of it. Mm-hmm. To really create that structure, that um, that opportunity um, that is promised on so many sports in the world for those esports. To translate that idea that a sport is very inclusive, that in esports, even better than in traditional sports, you can qualify from your local city in Pakistan um, to the regional qualifier and get flown into the world finals and win there. Mm-hmm. This story, we call it from zero to hero, is is the promise we're, we're bringing to the market, we're trying to bring to the world. And where esports is uniquely to positioned to offer this different than traditional sports where you basically need to train your whole life in most disciplines, right? Because they're so single focused and single minded. In esports with new um, disciplines growing up and coming into the market on an, you know, yearly or bi-yearly basis, it creates so much new opportunities that we believe actually adds real value to, to people from all over the world. If you want to be the best in football, you have to start at the age of five, right? There's no other way to become to the top there. In uh, Fortnite, uh, you couldn't play it uh, even six years before uh, because the game wasn't there, right? right. So, so the Durchlässigkeit in Germany, the opportunity to to rise ranks and to start as an amateur and end as a pro are much higher than in any other sport. And that's what we love about it. That's what we really want to hone in and really double down on, not only from how we build our sport, but as well on how what ESL as a brand, as a competition or as a company promises to, to our customers. And first and foremost, right, our customers are players and fans. That's where it all starts and evolves around. Obviously, we need the game publishers and their license, and we need you know commercial partners to 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 make a business out of it and um, to pay for it. But it's really we're a hundred percent laser focused on players and fans first, because they the the more successful we are there, the more participants we have and fans watching, um, the more we can actually build that individual sport. So let's have a look at the first ten years. First ten years, right? Uh, you, know, you know, as usual, any you know, starting any business is difficult. Um, as you said already earlier, uh, in the early days, you know, East gaming wasn't nearly a term yet. Maybe even right, or esports wasn't even a term yet, and people maybe looked down on it in, in so many ways. What, what was the first breakthrough, or sort of you know, what was the sort of the big uh, you know, what what worked? Um, where where the spark kind of took off. So, I mean, there's a bunch of things, right? I mean, I, I think I'll start with what didn't work. Um, it was really hard to get sponsorship at scale. So we, we actually had to be very cost efficient to, to make this happen. Mm-hmm. It was really hard to get media involved in any shape or form. Um, and that is all pre-YouTube time, right? So there was no VODs nor yeah. live streaming on the internet. Right. So we had to do a lot of those things ourselves because we couldn't pay companies to do it. So live streaming we did ourselves because that was the most cost-effective way. Mm-hmm. So it's a little bit and don't want to compare it to it, but if you look at Tesla, right, a lot of the things they did themselves and 
still do to, until today because there was no options on the market. And it's a little bit for that next generation media company we were at that point. I think we're different today, but at that point we were a next generation media company. We, we, we kind of doubled down on it and for the most part needed to do a lot of agency work to pay for our product work. Um, I think that's a little bit how we built it the first 10 years because between Really, I said this earlier, right? The tipping point was 2010, that this became a real global market. Mm. Ever until then, we, we really had to fight for survival and had to do things nearly perfect um, to, to get them done at all. But we, we pioneered a lot of things. We pioneered internet broadcasting back then. We pioneered social networking to some extent. ESL was a matchmaking platform, uh, so a social network for gamer for the most part of its first decade. And we had to do a lot of physical events actually to promote the sport because the online component of it, people didn't understand. So mm. in the very beginning, we wanted to build this structure and infrastructure primarily online, but that didn't translate to to, to um, enough attention in, let's call it, outside of the core community, number one, and number two, uh, not to enough uh, monetizable inventory, right? We, right. we we needed to create those events because that's where sponsorship and press and all was built around. That, that was really the first 10 years and a little bit internationalizing it, coming from a German company to become a European company, I would say, was really what we did in the first 10 years. Mm-hmm. Where, where did and you guys the, go? Where, where, where you set up some offices? Well, actually, all surrounding countries, so to speak, right? France, Italy, um, Spain, UK, Poland, um, Scandinavia, not so much because there was another company called DreamHack, um, which we actually acquired later. But anyway, that's that's a different part of the story. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we, we did a lot of that internationalization. We worked with different games and we really had... Intel as our core sponsor, as the endemic sponsor from day one, mm. who helped us to to make this big. So if you look at other sports, right, I think, you know, in, in, in football, Adidas was really the company that brought this up in the very early days. Right. In esports, hands down, it's Intel, um, which started on a local level and we built this local tour and brought internationally with Intel Extreme Masters, which is up until today, the longest running, biggest independent tournament series. And we we started to internationalize this 2006, um, a little bit before everyone else started to jump into that market. And um, that was really a big part of the breakthrough. So bringing it from local to at least regional, building up sponsorship inventory, bringing in Intel as the catalyst sponsor, um, all prepared us to what happened after 2010, where we kind of brought this international slash global, when we brought this from local tours to really stadium events, right? 2013 Katowice was the first global stadium event um, in the Western world. It brought us to to bring in sponsors on a strategic level, multiple ones of them specifically around that time. It um, enabled us to to create true media businesses. We were, I just remembered, looked at it, right? We we worked Twitch uh, with Twitch before they were Twitch, um, mm. when they were still Justin TV. I know Emmett, or we know Emmett and Kevin back from those days when they were, when they're still soul searching and they were still trying to figure out what to do, and you know started to double down on on 
on actually esports content. We were with them together. I was in their first office in in, in San Francisco. Mm. Um, so things like this all happened around that 2010 to 2014 time, which which really was the golden age when this became from from being something that a lot of visionary people tried to push into a business to become really a business. So that was the game changer that time. And and really within that time, we started to work with the big IPs of the world, League of Legends, Dota, um, Counter-Strike, we worked in from day one, but but a lot of the first, first generation of free-to-play games were actually all that time. Hmm. And uh, we're all a catalyst to what, what we're talking about right now. Really? So it was really, you know, the first 10 years I said, right, a lot of agency work to, to, to build our dream. And then 2010 to 2014, 15, 16, whatever you call it, um, really the hyper growth when this all became real, what we worked on, when the dream, when the dream became, um, became real. Yeah. Yeah. yeah before we, we dive into the, that second part there, um, I just have a couple more questions to the first 10, you know, because this is called the sports entrepreneurs podcast and, and sports in the broader sense of, you know, esports and gaming is all part of that. Um, you know, ten years—it's you know—is a long time, right? And you need to have a lot of staying power. Um, you know, you know, how were you guys funded? Was it all fully self-funded through certain you know uh, revenue streams you were able to build and and just let's say bootstrap it for ten years, or how would you describe it? Well, I I mean, between two thousand and two thousand, I think it was nine, we had three kind of funding events. Number one, we actually had a business angel in the very first days okay. who I think went in with 400,000 euros for the first two years. Mm. So that was kind of phase one to get this off the ground. And then we bootstrapped this pretty much till 2007 when we had a little bit of an of a mini intern around and mini is not mini mini, but it was like, you know, 750,000 euro from actually a local partner in the country. Mm. Um, we put in some, some money ourselves in as well because the company needed some money. Um, so that was kind of number two, but everything until then was, you know, roughly a million, a million euro plus. So mm. not too much for, Eight, nine years. And in 2009, um, actually got the first VC investment of three and a half million euro back in the days. So then we actually could start to really invest. You could see it, right? There's so obviously a pattern that between 2010, so it was one year later, and then 14, we grew so much. We basically become from a $10 million company to a $100 million company. That all happened, you know, 2000 to 2016. Wow. Uh, 2010 to 2016, right? So that we really 10 nixed in that and we got, you know, 10 million of funding to do that, um, which we needed. So that was, again, our hyper growth time um, in a good way. And yeah, the again, the first the first eight, nine, 10 years was was bootstrapping, was really working with, with very, very minimal invest um, to get the maximum out of there. 2009 to 15, we... We could spend, but we still needed to be very conscious. And then in 16, we really tried to bring the company global and could do it in a different in a different way and at different scale. Mm. Um, the most important things to, to get through that early times were frugality and, and smart business sense. We really thought twice about we I mean, there's plenty of weird stories when we did a tournament in Oslo and we went there with our own buses and brought our own food, right? Because it was, <laughs> we were with 
40, 50 people staff and, you know, if food, we bring our own food and it would cost five euros a day um, from Metro, um, that would bring us much further than we, we buy it for 30 locally. Right. So a lot of decision making has been very startup-ish in, in, in that time and not startup-ish from today's uh, point of view, but yeah. really scrappy, scrappy stuff. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Oh, it's great, and that's why I'm digging a bit around it because I think there is so much more to it. Uh, you know, you can jump straight into all the amazing stuff you guys are doing now, which we'll talk about later anyway. But uh, I think it is important for people to understand how long it took, you know, and how long you've been in this. Obviously, as you said, and 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 really working hard. Um, now. Um, you know, so when you uh, when you look at the these sort of big events, Intel Extreme Masters and the ASL Pro Tour and so on, uh, when were they started? Just give me a sense of timing. When were they actually happening, and and you know how long they've been running? <laughs> so I mean, when you really look back in two thousand two, we started what's called ESL Pro Series, um, which right now is ESL Meisterschaft. That was a local championship. Right. That was started back then. Intel Extreme Masters was started in 2006. And that is, you know, running up until today, um, approaching its 20th anniversary, which is mind-blowing. Yeah. So I'm um, looking forward to that. DreamHack actually was, which we're running today, right, was, uh, I think, started even earlier, I think 2004, four, five. That is from the international kind of um, brands than, than our longest running. It's a little bit different, right? Because it's more a festival than a competition, uh, but that's for another day. And then ESL Pro League is a good question. I think we are in season 16. That means eight years, right? So it's, yeah, pretty much 2013. 13 probably makes sense. Um, I don't know the exact day. 13 or 14. It uh, doesn't really matter. And last but not least, we, we bundled this all together, right? Because we built local competitions, regional, international, um, and kind of wanted to build an umbrella which connects it. And so that is called the ESL Pro Tour, mm-hmm. which connects in every discipline these individual competitions to one bigger narrative, um, which then gives obviously the fans an easier way to follow and watch partners an easier way to engage across a full sports ecosystem and media partners as well to to have a cohesive story so um that we did 2018 i think so this is still fairly new which makes sense right because we first built the competition infrastructure the you know what really makes sense from a from a participant and fan perspective and then kind of tie it together and simplify it a little bit. So I'd say a very natural progression that we went through and the, I think, relevant side note, there's plenty of competitions and names we built in between which, you know, are gone and we're not doing anymore. And most of them actually were were try and error, right? I think, Mm. you know, uh, on panels, I I would say, right, we're the biggest serial entrepreneur of building up sports because we tried dozens, if not hundreds of sports Mm. and really, you know, stick to what what worked and what works and, and, and continue to evolve and iterate. And we're, you know, 
far from being done, but um, every mistake you can do in building an ecosystem, we at least did twice. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, I'm sure there is a ton of learning there in the, over those 20 years here. Now let's uh, let's stick a little bit uh, in in the more uh, go a bit specific into each one of the or a couple of those here. So the ESL Pro League. So you have national championships, right? And you do the Pro League. What games do you guys play, and uh, you know how broad is this? Is this mostly European focus, or you have a couple of ones where you go yeah. global? So if, if, if the best comparison to traditional sports, right? So uh, local competition, then you have uh, Pro League, which is Champions League. Mm -hmm. Straightforward, right? Yeah. It's it's a league system. It's regional in in most of the games. Uh, in Counter Strike, it's actually global, so uh, everyone can because it's more advanced. Right? We usually start regional and then amplify it globally once it's done. It has pre qualifiers. You can think about it a little bit like in football, you would qualify for Euro League. Um, where you have groups between before, right? There's a Southeast Asian group, and the best team would progress to it. Some mm -hmm. national champions can directly progress to it. And actually, we have a little bit of a of a, of a hybrid franchise system. So there's a bunch of teams uh, which are automatically qualified. Um, uh, going back to rapid innovation, right? I think a lot of what football tried to build, we've already built, or traditional sports. That's not a, so much about football. Right. Anyway, so so that is probably. Uh, we have this in Counter-Strike. We have this um, in, in, in not many other games because it needs a certain, a certain let's call it, readiness for the ecosystem. Right. It's big. It's shiny. Leagues need stability. Leagues need, need a certain amount of teams that already have made themselves a name. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... It's actually we, we used to do it with some games who, who didn't who didn't survive through it. But if we if there would be a game that that is a team game, number one, right? And number two has a certain history leverage and uh, not leverage history heritage, and then then we would run a pro league there as well. That is the the way we run regional or global Champions League type. Got it. Type things. And, and I'm assuming in all cases, you always end up working with the developer or the publisher um, on this, right? I mean, you don't just pick a game and just run off. Exactly. Hell, right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That, that is always, we, we always license, obviously, the games, which is, right. you know, most of the time not a big deal uh, because we're, we're working with these publishers on so many things. Right. Um, and doing esports is very different than, than a lot of the other things you, you have to do. So, uh, no, there's, there's plenty of, uh, plenty of, um, of, of touch points. Yeah, for sure. Now let's talk a bit about ESL One because that's your big one. Yep. Right? That's your major competitions, uh, which you obviously again you do around the world. I recall. I recall we actually did some work together with you guys uh, when you brought ESL One to Malaysia uh, a few years ago. Uh, and I can't remember. I think it was Dota Two was the game yep. at that time. That's correct. Um, so you know, again, you know, unpack ESL One. What you know, how that connects with ESL Pro League, and what's the difference. Let me let, let, let me try this another way around, though, right? So sure. when, when we think about it, we first think in games, right? Each game is its own sport and own ecosystem, yeah. like tennis, like golf, like whatever. 
Right. Though we're a little bit more, let's call it structured and normalized. Every of those sports, we try to do the national championship, which is a local name, but it's national championship to create a base qualifier system up. Okay. Then again, as I said, if there is stability and size of it, then we do a pro league or something like a pro league um, to um, to this. And there is there is some games where we run a pro league type system, but it's not called pro league. Mm-hmm. That that is that is either a regional or global league layer and. Um, Here's probably then the difference now. Up until that, that is not so different than some traditional sports or even a League of Legends, right? Yep. The difference is that we have on top of or slash next to actually this league, we have individual tournaments um, called Intel Extreme Masters and ESL1. Mm-hmm. It's two different um, different uh, tournament brands. We have for multiple reasons. Some are sponsorship inventory. Some are actually a little bit game oriented. But the promise of those two is basically the best games in the world and the largest stadiums in the world. So that this is this is where you can actually um, really you know experience esports as you see in those flashy flashy videos. And then part of those are our championship events. Think a little bit world championship where you know part of that story culminates. And that happens actually in Counter-Strike twice a league in Cologne and Katowice. Um, in StarCraft, that happens once a year in Katowice only. Um, so it really depends a little bit again on the ecosystems. Uh, but yeah. No, interesting. Now, give, 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 give our audience a bit of a sense on the, the price money involved here now um, and where it comes from. Is it uh, ESL puts up the, all the money? You have, you know, Some of the money comes from the developers or publishers or it's raised in other ways. Um, how does that work across whether it's ESL1 or, or Pro Leagues? It really depends. We kind of differentiate there internally. This is less consumer focused. About three medals, models. One is called owned and operated. The, one, the second one is called hybrid. And the third one is called esports services, we call it. The owned and operated is primarily ESL branded, which means that we actually run all the risk, but we get all the rewards. So most of the price, there's uh, obviously outliers because nothing is black and white in those lives. But but think about it, that that most of the the risk means the price, money, and and everything we put up. Sometimes we get support there, financial from the publisher, but that's not the the core decision-making in our world um, of why and how we do this. Then we have the second bucket, which is called hybrid, which means that we get a fair share finance of that ecosystem by the publisher, but we usually have commercial rights, sometimes branding rights, to um, and, and have a strong saying in how to build this ecosystem together with the publisher. So think a little bit about it like a joint venture where the publisher brings in the right. core finance. Okay. And then point number three, and the third one is a ser- eSports services. That is really, in, in, in a good way, an agency business where we power the eSports activities of the publisher to come to life and to enter the market and build, hopefully, a sustaining eSports system mm-hmm. where we definitely believe, I mean, you know it yourself, monetizing eSports is still not as easy as it sounds. Absolutely. And specifically, the the player revenues are still in its infancy. But we really believe with ESL that we're building that infrastructure, that building that platform 
um, that that's long term can can help to monetize those ecosystems. So not only create the theoretic ecosystem to execute against it as part of a physical and online world, but as well to have the right framework and tools to monetize this. And this is really what ESL is about these days. So don't think as us as a company who does events or a company who does, you know, one game. It's really about a company who builds a platform to build ecosystems for esports, which are hopefully in the future self-sustainable. Yeah. Well, that makes total sense. And uh, being a bit in that space myself, I uh, fully appreciate and understand what you're saying as well as the difficulties which come with it. Um, like you said, the monetization, uh, we'll talk a bit about maybe later. Uh, now, just give a sense of uh, currently your office setup and, and sort of your core markets. Because um, from what I've seen mm -hmm. on the website, you, you kind of often have offices right around the region, France, Poland, uh, you had some Brazil, Australia, Asia, US, etc. Uh, you still there in all those places or what, where is the sort of your core focus at the moment? Okay, I, I think if you, if you look at it, we have a, a, a threefold structure, right? Where first of all, let's call it our global offices you would say we don't think that way anymore but that which was founded in cologne the biggest office in cologne yeah. but we really have we're really thinking about this less as this is headquarter but more you know the the most of the leadership sits in new york in cologne mm -hmm. the global leadership and that is because of time zones so it, it's less physical approach it's more a time zone approach right because even when we started, we had actually most of the leadership in, in Cologne and L.A., but the time zone difference is just hard. Mm. Six hours works, nine hours is really hard. Anyway, if you think about that, then we obviously have regional headquarters. And I'd say in the U.S., that is actually L.A. Mm -hmm. In Southeast Asia, that is actually Singapore. It used to be Australia, but we moved it. And in Europe, that's obviously alone. And we just opened, for example, in different parts of the world. In MENA, we opened an office in Riyadh. So there is, let's call it these more satellite offices of regions we're building. Um, then we have on that same layer, think about region, production hubs. That means places where we bundle most of our production. That means in the US, it's LA. Um, in Europe, it's actually Katowice of Poland. In Southeast Asia, it's Malaysia. To some extent, Australia as well. And we have something in Japan. But the core hub is in Malaysia. Right. And that is where we where we kind of bundle most of our local production capabilities. So we, okay. we went from a model where five, 10 years ago, we would have production capabilities in nearly all of our local offices, which I come next to. Um, but we moved this away to to concentrate them more on regional hubs. And then we have local offices, which are more sales and marketing offices these days. And we have them, you know, all across the world and plenty of offices, some ourselves, some with partners, some we do with local joint ventures with partners, right? So we're super open to build local markets together with local companies. Mm -hmm. We have no interest in coming as the big ESL behemoth and, you know, tell everyone to move away. It's the opposite. We're really thinking about this the other way around, that... Um, that we, we want to build esports all across the world. We want to give as many players the opportunity to, you know, come from zero to hero. And therefore, the best setup is a lot of time with to work with the best local people. 
Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. Uh, and I would say that's always been my approach too. Uh, obviously not as much around the world as you've done there, but uh, that's the same thing here we do it in Asia. Uh, so definitely you could follow that, the logic there. Um, now that's, uh, let's talk about, about obviously the major event in 2015, uh, which also, as you said, sort of fits into that huge growth curve, which you guys saw after 210, uh, where you saw the majority stake uh, to the com of the company, the Modern Times Group. Um, because I do recall, and, and I don't, I'm not sure I get the timing exactly right. I think we met um, slightly before that transaction uh, in Cologne once uh, when we were also starting to look at the space. Um, and I do remember you sharing at that time how hard it was. And after, you know, how many years you guys were in it, it was still, you know, very difficult to, you know, make money and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he was still, you know, burning certain holes here and there. Uh, now, selling the company and obviously for what I remember, it was a, a decent sum of money there. And again, it was obviously a major achievement. But also, a, you know, I'm sure it changed the whole, you know, so maybe trajectory and, and, uh, and what the company is all about. Talk a bit about it, you know, for yourself, as well as, I guess, from a company point of view. So yeah, I, I alluded this to earlier, right? So so 2000 to 2010 was really the the startup phase, right? 2010 to 2015 there was really the scale up phase, and 2015 to 2020 was probably the real globalization phase. So so we really went into a different phase with with MTG um, through that time. I think. Message number one, we actually didn't sell the company. We always say this was a pit stop, right? So mm -hmm. actually, you know, full transparency in this public, I, I for example, sold uh, below 20% of my shares and kept the rest. Okay. So um, we did quite a bunch of financing. So my relative shareholding declined, though the, uh, luckily the value of the company. So I'm proud to say that I own much more um, than I did six years ago when MTG started to get in. And, and you know, today I'm actually the second largest shareholder of this. Right. I'm in a good way. Right. So um, I, I think that's point number one, um, really. I think point number two, we, 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 you know, we went with MTG back then. We did a big, big round. And we spoke to plenty of great companies, um, had exposure to many of those. These processes help you so much to get better as well because you get asked the same question over and over Absolutely. and over again. So you, you get sharper by doing it. And the, the decision-making really was, hey, this is a Swiss and terms of neutral type of media company, which hopefully can help us to bring this from, let's call it now a niche sport to a mainstream sport. Mm -hmm. um, they have been the biggest buyer of sports content in Central Europe, actually. Mm -hmm. So they had a lot of experience with bringing, bringing sports to the masses and mainstream. And due to that they are Swedish, they are perceived fairly neutral. One of our core concerns was we know that publishers are a very important stakeholder of our business, right? Without their licenses, we're going to have big problems. Yep. So making sure that we are you know, more perceived as neutral rather than uh, in any camp was extremely important for us. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And point number two, the other type of companies, I mean, media companies, we, we just said what we liked about them. But what we disliked about them was as well that, it, you know, if you would have picked a Facebook or, um, or a CBS or ESPN, right, that would put you in a certain bucket where we didn't really want to mm -hmm. be in. So with, with MTG, we had the right balance between sticking independent, being perceived as neutral, being somewhat international, 
but still being um, Swiss. Um, so that was kind of the core decision making behind it. And um, it was a long learning um, and they evolved as well from being a media company to now being, you know, an esports games company. Um, so they divested from their, their let's call it their old business, uh, their oh, old right. TV business. Okay. Um, a few years ago, actually, two, three years ago. Mm. And uh, we evolved from being, let's say, that global media company into um, a global platform. Right, right. Yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, so, um, so because MDT also, MDG also bought a few other things, right? They, then they, they, they acquired some additional things, right, in the same space. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, they, they started to acquire games companies in 16, actually. I think they bought InnoGames as, let's call it, the old MTG. And then in 2019, so two years ago, they split, right? They split off the old media oh, business right. to okay. what's called NEND now and are now esports and gaming. Right, right. Got it. Okay, cool. So, you know, again, there being a, uh, you know, still, a, I guess, a major shareholder in the company, are they heavily involved in the direction or are you guys are still pretty much running it as the entrepreneurs of the company? And <laughs> No, I, I, I think they've been involved on, an, on a governance and board level ever since 2016, really. Um, so a year after that deal happened, it, the personnel on their side changed. Um, one, one guy stayed, which is on Benningoff, which you might know, right? He's an... Um, uh, pretty pretty well-known German media exec, or used to be, right? Now he's gaming executive. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the the CEO of NTG changed in between, so that was was changed. But no, I, I think we have a very normal normal board governance. And, um, you know, sometimes they were, they were involved for good and sometimes for bad. Um, like every board goes, I'd say. <laughs> yeah, okay, we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, I, I know what you're talking about. Now, uh, let, let's talk about the future here, right? Not just of the company, but also, of course, of the industry a bit. Um, you know, you, I think you already spelled well out where, where you guys want to be. Uh, but, of course, then there is constantly new things are happening, which, to some degree, we're in there three years ago, even five years ago, or maybe even two years ago, you know, whether we're talking about NFT, uh, you know, and, and the games now, NFT games, uh, you know, the metaverse is, is another new buzzword out there. And of course, now you're starting to see, you know, major, you know, major numbers here, right? Uh, an esports team recently, Face Clan, I think they're, they were thrown a number, thrown around of a billion dollar valuation. Of course, you got you know the big publishers, and whether you're now enabled Garena, you know, which is a two hundred billion dollar giant. It's not just gaming, but uh, you know, gaming clearly drives a big part of that. And so, and then you have you know huge competitions around the world. The international recently forty million dollar prize money. I mean, this this thing is just going, getting bigger and bigger, and every day there's new layers and and facets coming into it. And right, and so how much you guys are constantly adjusting and looking at these new trends and then figuring out how that fits into what you call your ecosystem, right? I'm assuming you are. Well, I, I mean, super complicated, super simple, right? I think, I think we are really thinking about this. We get a game license. We create an ecosystem around it, which attracts the best players, which attracts the best, which comes with the best teams, which brings the, the enough fans, which would then we can monetize through B2B and B2C. It's actually that weird simple. Right. The hard thing is about how to build this. Every step of this is hyper complex and needs specialized knowledge. 
And that is a little bit unique about it. And that there's new stuff coming in every day. The the challenge of media rights and how to monetize properly against it has not been solved in esports, um, yeah. like it has been in traditional sports, for good and for bad. NFTs are coming into this space and changing the, the thought process about B2C monetization quite drastically. How you combine people participating and fans, how do you combine the media product with the play product, so to speak, and with the engagement in between is something where we're adjusting every day. But our our approach has always been, we want to build that platform that can power exactly this and which we can plug and play for different type of games. So that is our North Star, that is our long-term strategy and to have that as inclusive as possible, as I said, which is our brand promise to our fans. And everything we do, we just go back to, 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 to does it improve our long-term North Star? And if it does, then we double down on it and try to, to, to become either the best of the world or work with the best people in the world. It's probably every entrepreneur after a certain amount of years and learnings will tell you, focus on the right things, be very clear with your strategy and relentlessly improve against it, which sounds really simple, but it's really hard. <laughs> yeah, trust me. I know I've been doing that, but trying it for 25 years. Um, and I know, <laughs> so, yeah, no, it's, yeah, I love it. It's a great, great comment here. Now, I, I do read about your deal with Immutable X, um, where you are creating uh, NFTs, I think, for CSGO, right? And, uh, um, and I'm not sure you've, dro I, I saw a little bit. I went to OpenSea there to, to see you had a couple of drops there. Uh, what is it really exactly all about? And what what are the NFTs uh, you guys are dropping? I understand. So I mean, go once level back. This is, you know, what we're doing right now is test and learn. So these are yep. all, you know, big tests and trying to figure this out. Yep. What we believe though is that, um, you know, if you, if you go two steps back, what happened in video games in 2010, really free-to-play came to the Western market. It kind of disrupted the traditional model. Disrupted is, uh, sounds negative, and it's negative connotated, right? But it, it really enlarged the gaming industry by adding to I buy a box for $60 a model, which is um, actually I want to build this game for the rest of my life. And funnily, this was the first time that the business model of games was uh, was aligned with the one of esports, right? Mm. So the long-term aspect of growing and building in, in communities was for the first time aligned with the same idea of esports. Before that, publishers were not great partners for us because their incentives were set up very differently. Mm. Uh, there was outliers, right? Blizzard was from day one great in, in building communities and thought different, but the general approach was very, very different. Anyway, NFTs, we, we feel and believe are doing the same. We've, there hasn't been really the magic key on how to engage with the community and give them ownership about certain things. Mm -hmm. Funnily, what you just said, the international price money is in one of the outliers there where they created something which the community wants and feels to be part of and can contribute to the growth and the relevance of that ecosystem. And we really believe that uh, NFT can do something similar for us. It's super early. It will take us a few years to figure it out, but we're starting now, right? We're not right. waiting for someone else to figure it out. I think, you know, no one ever became first by following the leader, uh, my good friend Spike once said. Um, and uh, therefore, we're always happy and eager to try and invest into new things, mm. to be 
on the forefront of innovation and figuring those things out. Certainly. Immutable is, uh, in our point of view, the best partner um, from a blockchain layer perspective to help us execute an NFT strategy. Mm -hmm. Why? Because they are extremely gaming focused. So a lot of what they do comes from a technical and philosophy point of view into the gaming industry. Number two, they're extremely efficient. So you don't run into the typical problem of wasting so much energy while trading NFTs, right? one of the problems of blockchain is the usage of, of uh, power. They don't fully solve it, don't get me wrong, but they yeah. solve part of the problem. Right. Yeah, they seem to have low gas fees right, from what I read. Exactly, exactly, because they're bundling those transactions to make it more efficient. So it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's an efficiency play. Um, yep. And I can jump to sustainability in a second, but yes, so, so and they are extremely fast, reliable, um, and, and, and have a very similar philosophy about it. So um, we literally spoke to everyone, but they was very, very, very excited about working with Immutables and specifically around Counter-Strike, which is our longstanding IP, which is yep. you know one of the two largest esports in the world. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, and like what you just said earlier about being in there, I, you know, I, I use the term you have to be in it to win it, right? Meaning you have to be in the game or being in the in the whatever the opportunity is and sitting on the sideline. Sure, you can watch it, and it doesn't always mean being first. Uh, suppose anything uh, means you're going to be winning it. Right? I think Google is a great example, and Yahoo or others here. But uh, uh, you do learn differently, right? And that's sort of my philosophy as well. Um, you know, as we said, as I mentioned earlier, right? We, we got an esports team now. We have a gaming platform. We're doing a bunch of other stuff as well. And similar reason, right? You just want to be there and learn it and figure it out from there um yeah this, this is really interesting now you know sticking a bit here to um you know sort of uh, where we are right now in this current climate right the last couple of years obviously we've all been stuck at home you know i think you calling from home i'm calling from home here um you know how has covid really changed um, the ESL model, um, you know, because you obviously had huge events, which was, you know, a big part of, I guess, what, what was uh, what call, let's call it your bread and butter business. Um, and that's obviously, to some degree, I'm sure all disappeared or, or, or was put on hold. Um, so what was sort of the, the big shift for you guys? Uh, and how did you cope with COVID? And that's a bunch of things, right? I think number one, it didn't change too much in what we were trying to do because I said this earlier, when we started, we were an online only league and we did events because we were forced to, not because we loved to. Mm -hmm. To some extent, it was going back to the roots from a product portfolio point of view. So that I think that's number one. And it doesn't change too much in we want to build ecosystems and yada, yada, yada everything we spoke about. Right. Number two, I think from a commercial aspect, at first was, you know, we were scared like everyone else in the world. But it turned out that actually more people will tune in. It's, it's you know, definitely not a disadvantage for esports. We could continue to run our competition basically without any break. Mm -hmm. And therefore, we were fine from a pure pure commercial business point of view. And um, if you look at how the world evolved, it's more digital rather than less digital than... What is it, 18 months ago? What the hell? Um, yep. So from a pure, let's call it, industry point of view, right, eSports has has um, certainly not uh, been hit hard from this. No. I think point number three is a little bit on how we work. We are 
I always consider us be very lucky of being a global company and very few people can appreciate how hard it is to run a global company. It is, I always say, the hardest thing we did. It's the best thing we did that we globalized it in 2014, really. But it was the hardest and worst thing at the same time. Mm. Um, different culture, different time zones, different leadership styles, a decentralized structure together with a central leadership. It's really, really, really hard. And COVID has actually helped us to ease one of the top three problems with that, which is communication. Before that, and people, and I didn't appreciate this myself big enough, in Cologne, there were the largest amount of people, 200, and them speaking on the walk-around tour at the coffee machine is a great asset and it's a great liability because basically everyone in the rest of the world wouldn't be able to share those conversations. Mm -hmm. So they were starting their day every day with a certain amount of communication deficit. Mm -hmm. They just knew less. And that ultimately on the long run um, makes your company go further away from each other rather than getting closer. And no company before COVID has figured out really a proper documentation, communication, meeting, a digital workflow communication process, which people 100% followed. Yeah. I think what, what COVID forced us to do is to treat everyone similarly. I, there, I mean, I did this always by, let's call it hard, but operationally still you sometimes do it differently. But there's a lot of people inside our company who are not digital first and in every major company who, you know, there's still people printing emails, not in our company, but you know now now everyone is forced on kind of go to the fight with the same weapons or you know go to the go to the game with the same racks. Um, means there the communication deficit is super minimized, and therefore our company is simply a better company. We had time to reset a lot of the global processes. We had time to enforce a lot of the digital processes where. Frankly, as a CEO, I should have been harsher before. And you know, one learning is to, to, to really force people to do processes the right way. And frankly, COVID has enabled us to be the global company we always wanted to be. I love it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And uh, I think there's many companies in the world who have seen those changes, what you're talking about here. And, uh, and that gaming or esports had you know, maybe had a, you know, I would say beneficiary of, of uh, COVID is the wrong word here, but uh, had a different impact than many others, uh, for sure. Um, and it's, I'm glad to see that. How, just, uh, just uh, roughly, how many people you have now around the world? So you have... Uh, uh, quite a lot. It's close to 700 people, right? Wow. I mean, we acquired DreamHack, uh, what was it? Last year, last year summer, so... Um, Okay. Right within COVID, right? So um, we got this together. Um, yeah, really. 700, wow. Okay. Quite a lot. That's a, that's yeah, a large lot. number. Yeah, that's a lot of folks you, a lot of people you got to pay. Oh, <laughs> amazing. A lot of bread to break, everyone. Uh, a lot of bread to break, a lot of checks to pay here. Um, now, as we kind of coming a bit to the close here, and, and, and I want to wrap it up as you as well, uh, I know you also have 
quite a few other roles outside, of course, of being you know co-founder and and the co-CEO here of of ESL. Uh, you're involved in the Clone Games Lab. You involved as VESA, which is the World Esports Association. Gamescom. Uh, you know, recently I think you joined Sport Total, Sport Total AG. Um, you know, in some sort of a board level, I guess. Uh, in some of those scenarios, you know, how do you find all the time for those? Is probably the first question. But uh, you know, what what is the sort of your favorite? Uh, where you're involved in, and and you really enjoying the sort of you know how you bringing your knowledge of the industry into these uh, other associations here. Look, I, I a bunch of things. I mean, number one, it's funny because I I've never done anything that really costs me a lot of time next to my core job. I always decline things. It's, it's, there's a lot of people who do many projects at the same time. Look at, you know, crazy Twitter CEO who runs Stripe on the side or, you know, Elon Musk. I, I always admire those people for how they can do it. I can't. So I've been for the last 20 years 100% laser focused on being CEO of ESL. Um, and I still am, right? So then there is, let's call it, non-profit work, um, which is Cologne Games Lab, all these advisory boards, they are usually somehow connected to my work um, and, and have a direct benefit for both sides, right? If if I know what the universities are doing in Germany about game development, uh, I can help you know them a little bit and I can, can get good employees there. So it's time I would probably use in a similar fashion anyway. Mm. If um, I'm in the advisory of the local um, states, then it will probably have something to do with Gamescom, and then I'm in the Gamescom board, so I can help them. So, it's, and, and we do a lot of business with Gamescom, so so it's usually win-win stuff, which is very closely connected to the business I'm doing. And then there's a third piece, which um, I'm actually doing a relevant amount of angel investing. But they, these are usually connected as well to something I like, right? They are even next generation games or, um, or you know, platforms that are around the ESL ecosystem, so to speak, which mm -hmm. which will create a benefit back or forth. Sort of. Last but not least, it's it's officially official advisory position Sport Total. That is kind of the only one where. It's actually a little bit disconnected. I mean, it's similar industry, don't get me wrong, but um, I'd say that's the only one where there's no direct to connect to my day job. Um, and that I actually did because I, I like Peter so much, the CEO, um, because probably, you know, connecting this a little bit to the Twitch story, I probably be in uniquely positioned to have some insights that uh, very few people have on how to build something like this. Um, and after all, number three, it, it still actually pays dividend to my core job because it gives a certain access to the German and Central European sports industry, which, you know, ultimately will have an esports strategy or not. Um, so, so there's synergies again. I probably would not accept um, to be on the board of directors of a Luxembourg company which does biotech because it has nothing to do with us. So I, I'm usually looking and trying to find synergies with the core of my interests, the core of my duties um, to create win-win situations in nearly everything I'm doing. Yeah. No, and if it's not short term, then at least long term. Yeah, that all makes complete sense. Uh, at the end of the day, I, I do these as well, and and you do it because you learn, right? As well, you know, you, it, it brings you a different, gives you a different perspective, maybe, and and 
you can bring your expertise in, but also you're learning from people you're, you're, you're hanging out with, right? And you're dealing within those other companies. So it all makes complete sense. Ralph, that was a lot of fun here. I think we, we got nicely uh, through the that 20 plus year journey of a CVO at the, the first 10 there of some BMW stories. Um, you know, it's it's been an amazing ride you've had, and uh, clearly from the energy you're bringing to it, uh, you know we're near finished, uh, and there's plenty more to coming uh, coming from what I, ESL gaming and and of course what you guys are bringing to the industry. So, continue wishing you best of luck and congratulations, of course, for everything you've already done. Um, my journey is much you, younger and and fresher, so I'm watching you and learning you, and I've already learned plenty here during our conversation. And uh, of course, we're looking forward to doing some more. I'll hopefully see you maybe over the holidays in Cologne for a beer. Absolutely, please, please uh, tell me, and you can actually show me around. You're you're the local. <laughs> yeah, well, you've been more longer there than I've been now there, sure. living at least. Cool. But uh, I'm sure we'll find a nice place for a beer. We will. Pleasure. Pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, vielen Dank. Bis bald. Danke. Ciao, ciao. Ciao, ciao. The Sports Entrepreneurs by Marcus Lure Podcasts are a collection of interviews and stories. All content in this podcast is the copyright of Marcus Lure. Reproduction and distribution of the presentation without written permission of the owner is prohibited. All rights reserved.